Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. My guest today is the president of one of the most trusted brands in motoring today. Everyone knows this brand as it is synonymous with reliability, efficiency and Britain. We're going to talk about the role this organisation is playing in the global shift to CO2 neutral solutions. This is the continuation of the new automotive series on Headstalk. But before we get into that, here is a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Edmund King OBE is the president of the Automobile Association, also known as the AA. It has been an integral part of British motoring since 1905, and today we will talk about the new motoring revolution, as it is called, and the effects it will have on the AA. Edmund is in his 13th year of presidency, and prior to this, he was the executive director of the RAC Foundation. Other information about Edmund is that he is a visiting professor of transport at the University of Newcastle, where he lectures PhD students and undergraduates on the use of media to influence transport policy. And he was appointed officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE, in the 2016 New Year's Honours for services to road safety. Let's have a conversation with Edmund now. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Edmund to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Hello there, Elaine. Hi. Um, It's great to have you as part of the new series on Heads Talk and quite curious about the the AA's take on, on this global transition in the motoring world. Let's start with this. The AA currently provides a plethora of services to include, but not limited to, breakdown coverage, um, vehicle insurance, loans, route, and other services. Paint a picture for my listeners of the role the AA is playing today in the motoring world and the role you expect it to play after 2030. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because, as you said, the AA actually started out in 1905 and it was really to protect the interest of those early motorists, whether it was looking at speeding, whether it's looking at putting up road signs. The AA even introduced the first filling station in in the UK. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of fast forward over 100 years and looking at it today, there are some similarities with our forefathers back then, because we are on this revolution towards zero emission vehicles. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things we're doing now are quite similar to what our forefathers did, particularly in trying to reassure drivers that, you know, the future's still good, the future's bright, the future might be keen, but you can still be part of it. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that drivers in the UK do have quite a few anxieties um, about the future, the transition to EVs, mm-hmm. you know, not, not just range anxiety, but, you know, how do they work? How do I charge? Yeah. What happens if I break down? Where do I get insurance? What are the best deals, etc.? Mm-hmm. So I think one of the current roles of the AA at the moment is, is really trying to reassure, to educate, to make that transition to EVs almost simpler and smarter. So to give very basic advice. And, you know, we're, we're doing quite a lot along that, that route. So all of our patrols now are trained in working on EVs. So they know what to do if they come across um, an EV. And they've got special equipment, you know, even things from special gloves to technology in in their vans so that they can deal with EVs. Because what what we're seeing is cars, cars are very much the same in one way. You know, they they have four wheels, they have a steering wheel still. But the real change when you go from combustion engine to EV is that you're getting rid of thousands of parts Mm. and it's almost becoming a computer on wheels. So to some extent, the patrols are putting away the the spanners and using the laptop to plug into the car to Mm. find what the problems are. So, yeah, it's it's a transition. It's very exciting, but we still think there's a a real role for the AA in helping Mm. drivers across the UK. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so thank you for giving us this, this brief um, view of the role AA will play. But let's look at the internal changes within AA itself. I mean, you've talked about it. We know the cars are becoming greener, safer and more efficient. But how does this, this transition impact your business model, if at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it really does, because we have to think across the whole life of the EV, you know, almost from cradle to grave. So, for example, at the AA, mm-hmm. we have AA driving school, we have BSM driving school where, where people learn to drive. So already we're piloting a few EVs with the driving schools okay. so that the new drivers of the future can learn in EVs. So, you know, that that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, if you've passed your test, where do you buy a car? So we actually have a used car portal called AA Cars. And again, that's getting more and more EVs on AA Cars. You're getting more used EVs, you know, think things like Nissan Leaf, Renault Zoe, maybe three years old, four years old, coming up. Mm-hmm. And, and that is quite a popular market, particularly amongst the kind of younger drivers who perhaps can't afford a brand new EV, mm-hmm. but are looking at a used one. We've also just launched a similar thing to help other drivers called AA Smart Lease, whereby you can lease an EV and get your breakdown included, etc. And one of the theories is, as we transition to EVs, because the technology is changing so quickly and because some drivers are worried about the long-term life of the main battery in the ev which makes up about 30 to 40 percent of the cost 
there, there is a slight switch to some people leasing rather than buying the cars outright because on a lease deal, you know, you can send the car back after yeah. two or three years and switch it to a newer model. So, so that that is a change as well. Um, we're looking at our garage network. We have a smart care garage network, and already more than a third of that network can work on EVs, which mm-hmm. is important. Uh, the patrol's training is important. Do, mm-hmm. Dealing with breakdowns is is important. So the business model is still really the same, and the fundamental things we do, like breakdown insurance of EVs, they are similar, but you get various add-ons. So with the motor insurance for EVs, we've kind of added on that we'll cover the cables, you know, whether right. someone trips on the cable or the cables are stolen, etc. So there are some nuanced changes, but I think the essence of what the AA has done for a hundred odd years mm-hmm. of keeping Britain moving, keeping drivers on the road, mm-hmm. helping drivers in their hour of need, that continues to be the same. All right. So, so the fundamentals are there. They're just slight variations to accommodate with the to the new shift to EVs. But I, I suspect there are big changes with the shift to digitalization. How has that modified your model? How has that changed things? How has that made stuff automated yeah. within the business? Yeah, I mean the 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 first part, you know, for the main part of our business, they kind of break down side it is interesting because with with evs and conventional combustion engine cars petrol or diesel um the top 30 percent of breakdowns are exactly the same so it is problems with wheels tires Mm. punctures and the 12 volt battery so it's it's the battery that starts the car rather than on the ev the battery that runs the car Mm -hmm. so those things are the same but i think after that, you do start getting differences with EVs, and it tends to be kind of data problems, updating yeah. uh, software problems on EV. And that's where more of the technology does come into play. And that's where we we have very good relationships with the main manufacturers, and many of them offer AA breakdown as part of the deal of buying a new EV. So we're fully engaged in that process. So digitalization comes in there. But I think in a broader sphere, and and where we want to speed up things is how customers use the digital journey. So already with the AA app, if you actually break down, it is much better to use the app to contact our control center rather than to phone up in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that using the app, we can pinpoint exactly where you are. Whereas when people phone up, mm-hmm. they might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm on the M6. Um, <laughs> there's a farm over in the corner. There's a, I can see a pub in the distance, but, they don't really know what junction they're at. They don't know if they're northbound, they're southbound. So using the app kind of helps us to pinpoint it. And then using the app, they can track their patrol. So you can actually see where your patrol is, mm-hmm. see how long it's going yeah. to take for the patrol to get to you. So that kind of technology not only helps us as a business, but also helps our customers. 
Yes, it, it sounds a lot more efficient now. Um, out of curiosity, um, has the app replaced the, I remember the, the AA members handbook, has, has the app replaced that? Yeah, many people were, were very fond of the original yes. members handbooks. My and, you know, in, indeed, I, I remember growing up in Norwich and my dad always in his Ford Zephyr had the AA handbook. He had a key to an AA phone box. We used to have those old phone boxes on the A11 and other roads like that that, that member, members could, could use. And yes, though, those have now um, phased out. I, I guess the one traditional thing from the AA that's still alive and well, actually, but perhaps surprisingly, is the AA Atlas. Even oh. with sat-navs, um, we are seeing actually an increase in the number of atlases we, we, we sell. So I think that's one bit of nostalgia that people feel that... Yeah, that's one is, it, is it for use or is that a memorabilia? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's a bit of both, actually, because one is if there really is a problem with traffic ahead and the roads closed, mm -hmm. the sat-nav sometimes can be a bit of a pain because it tries to take you back to the original road that's actually mm -hmm. closed. So for some people, actually having an atlas in the car means they can look at the atlas and then plan another route. And I always carry one in the back of my car and it seems more people are doing so. <laughs> okay, that's that's very interesting. Okay, uh, I'm going to ask a very very quick current um, affairs question in your area, as it's happening now. Um, where are we with the fuel crisis, and how has the AA been affected by this? It, it probably would be a good idea to briefly tell my listeners about the crisis bef before providing details about the status, if you could, Edmund. Yeah, what happened in in the UK relatively um, recently? was that a number of garages ran out of fuel. Now, there wasn't a problem with the supply of fuel at the refineries, but what actually happened, there was a meeting with government with some of the fuel suppliers, mm -hmm. and a reference to that meeting was leaked to the media, mm. where one of the oil companies apparently said there was a problem getting enough drivers to get fuel in some localized areas to deliver fuel. This got leaked out to the media and it led to a lot of really panic buying. So if, if you imagine there are something like 35 million vehicles in the UK, and if at any one time, most of them have got half a tank of fuel, mm -hmm. if you then get that other 50% that normally would have half a tank of fuel and not be worried about it, rushing to the pumps to, to fill up, then you've got millions and millions of extra litres of fuel. Um, so that, that's what's happened. happened. But thankfully at the AA, our, our people were slightly ahead of the game. And on the Thursday before the crisis, a message went out to AA patrols and all their vehicles to actually fill up, which they did. So over that first weekend when many of the pumps ran dry particularly in the south of England AA patrols could still go about their business they then have their various Facebook groups um, and if anyone was struggling with fuel any of the patrols other patrols would tell them where to get it so mm. we we actually managed if the situation had have got worse we'd talk to government 
and we would have been on an emergency list oh, but yes. thankfully it didn't quite go that far all right okay but, but you were prepared which is fantastic okay right back to the shift to uh, co2 neutral solutions uh, let's have a look at what other um, similar organizations are doing with this change what are you seeing with your your peers on the continent mm. in how they themselves are preparing for the global shift to co2 neutral vehicles you know the peers that are providing for example breakdowns we just talked about mm. vehicle insurance all that sort of stuff what, what, what are you seeing yeah in, in indeed we we speak to colleagues from america to australia to europe on quite a regular basis and in fact today a couple of my colleagues ironically are talking to the clubs about electrification mm -hmm. but different clubs in different parts of the world are approaching it slightly differently so if you look in australia our counterparts in western australia mm -hmm. have actually helped to deliver this so-called electric highway that actually goes from perth to augusta and what it is on the electric highway they've actually put in their own charging stations along that route so they're actually investing in some of the infrastructure there which you know isn't happening as much in the uk in the uk it tends to be private companies taking the lead or indeed in towns and cities some of the local authorities with some government incentives so that that's in australia in uh holland where they've got you know fairly few quite a few early adopters um of evs during lockdown, one, one, one of the, our colleagues from over in Holland had this idea about recharging and whether you could get a large battery in a trailer so that if you were recharging an EV on the move, you're not using the diesel engine in the van to run the charger. But if you've got a, back, a big battery on a char on on, on a, a, a trolley, if you're towing it on a trailer, then it uses the actual power of that battery. So they they trialed that in a couple of locations, and we're waiting to to hear oh. the results of that. Was that going to work? Carry on. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, so it, it'll be interesting. But again, you know, there there are problems because if you actually look and the number of vehicles that run out of charge, it is incredibly low. You know, range anxiety is, is very much, in, in many cases, a kind of psychological thing. An urban myth, you're saying? Well, not so much an urban myth. I can, I can understand why people have anxiety, because it's changing from a system yeah. where you yeah. just go into a garage, takes five minutes, and you fill up, and it is a new system. But when you look at the actual figures, the, the percentage of breakdowns that, that we have from electric vehicles running out of charge is less than 4% of all breakdowns. And that's halved from 8% a few years ago. And then if you look at, at the more developed markets like Norway, they are actually running at less than 1% of breakdowns are out of charge. Now, the reasons for these breakdowns going down you know one we're getting better charging infrastructure yeah two we're getting char cars with better ranges you know already in the united kingdom there, mm -hmm. there are something like 40 to 50 different models that you can get way over 200 
miles range, which is yes. which is pretty good. And also, I think the education is getting better. People are, are getting used to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, there are still psychological barriers and there are, there are still lots of myths out there. We, we still get the question, um, what if I drive my EV through mm. a puddle or through a Ford or can my EV go in a car wash? You know, they, there is still uncertainty. So I think one of the one of the roles for us at the AA, and you know, this is this is harking back to what some of our continental partners are doing as well, is actually getting out there and and talking to our our members and you know answering th their their questions because this probably is the biggest change in in yes. automotive that you know we've had for mm. over 50 years so it is quite a radical change and i think people just need to be helped a little bit along the way i think it's brilliant that the the aa is doing this it's, it's almost like an education program but do you think government should be doing more of it and rather than perhaps the reliance of organizations like the aa in that sense yeah i mean the government do, does play its role it has set up the office of zero emission vehicles so ozev it was olev it was the the office of low emission vehicles and now it's gone to zero emission uh vehicles and they do have various kind of education and promotional uh campaigns but one of the things elaine that that we have found quite a lot when we actually do focus groups and we had one last week with EV drivers. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've really found is, and, and it surprised me in a little way, that you kind of think of EV drivers out there as early adopters and they've done all the research and mm -hmm. they know all the background to the cars and they've read up on charging, you know, all, almost as, as kind of anoraks. But that wasn't the case in it in our focus groups we we actually found quite a few of the drivers kind of did it on a bit of a whim and switched on a bit of a whim and then thought oh what do i do about a home charger what's the best home charger to have <laughs> and it it was it was totally contrary to what some of us had, had perhaps yeah. thought you know they kind of fell into it mm, i'm wondering the thing yeah i was surprised by that but one of the things that also came out of it, and this might be a bit more linked to lockdown, so there might be a bit of an excuse there, but a lot of people were saying when they got their EV, and if it was a brand new EV, the handover from the vehicle manufacturer or, or the showroom was not particularly good. You know, they, they didn't feel... Oh. they got enough insight in, into charging, how you charge, how you charge at home, how you charge your way, when will you need a service, mm -hmm. what will be the difference between the service on an electric vehicle and the combustion engine vehicle. So all those kind of questions seem, seem to be somewhat passed over. So when, you, when you're talking about education i think there's a role across the board there's a role for ourselves yeah. there's yeah. a role for government there's a role for the manufacturers yeah. um to to actually enhance them because what what you generally find once they've got the ev once they've got used to it pe people love them and i i think for me what where i've got a great deal of optimism i mean i've been i've been driving evs on and off for more than 20 years um mm -hmm. 
And the first EV I had 20 years ago was a little Ford Think car. You were one of the first adopters then. I was a very early adopter. It had a polyurethane blue body <laughs> and it had a range of 37 miles, which was pretty rubbish. And I did run out of charge because one day I was going from London to St Albans, which is 26 miles, but I didn't account for the rain that came down and it seemed to use the windscreen wipers and seemed oh. to use more power and I didn't quite make it so I had to call the AA um, <laughs> but but go from that car 20 years ago and fast forward and now on the market I would say in the last two or three years may, maybe five or six years ago I wasn't so optimistic you know yes we had the Nissan Leaf mm -hmm. but we didn't have much excitement out there Today, when you go out in the market, you know, you, you can get almost any model of car from a sports car to a family car to a compact car to an SUV car to a touring car. There are, there are brilliant cars the out there. The options are plentiful, which is, which is pretty good. And I, I, suppose, it is. I suppose you would agree that corporations that have fleet cars should be part, should do their bit of education for, for, for their staff that sort of tend to upgrade their company cars as well. Because I was thinking yeah, we I th that very few knew about the details about it. I sort of imagine um, a, a corporate individual swapping their IC, ICE cars mm -hmm. for an electric vehicle uh, from part of the company's fleet and therefore probably not done much homework on it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought maybe it's that. Yeah, I, th I think fleets are incredibly important when it comes to this kind of transition. I mean, but for one reason, the UK is slightly unique in that we have far more company cars and fleet mm. cars in the UK than other European countries. So something like over 50% of new cars sold in the UK are to fleets. Yes. So when you're talking about evolving the kind of car park out there, fleets are the perfect catalyst. So if you can get more fleets to adopt EVs, mm. that means within two or three years all those cars are then going onto the used car market people mm. can go to aa cars and other sites and get used cars and then you get evs penetrating the market those on lower incomes can yes. then afford the evs so i think i think you're absolutely right the fleets are important there and they're also important in educating their drivers and mm. you know Certainly at the AA now, those that have company cars, the vast majority now are either full EV or plug-in hybrids of, of mm. one sort or another. And, you know, we've seen that transition with more charging points in, in our yeah. offices uh, uh, around, around the country. And whereas initially it was just the kind of plug-in hybrids that were there. You know, when I go to Basingstoke, it's, you know, sometimes you have to get there a bit early in the morning in order to plug in because mm. there are more and more nice. EVs coming on the market. So, yeah, things are changing. And I think companies and fleets have, have a great role to play here. It's nice to, to see and hear about the various bodies embracing um, this, this change. Um, are there any initiatives, proposals or projects that DA is currently involved in or running in, in this area that you'd like to share with my listeners? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's quite a few things that that we're involved with. You know, during COP twenty six, some of us did a EV rally of, of Scotland, going around the whole of the north of Scotland, using mm -hmm. charging points there, and not charging overnight at hotels. And 
the reason the reason we looked at that was that if if you are lucky enough in in the UK to have off street parking it's easy to have a charging point at home and the vast majority of your charging will be done at home but there's something like 30 to 35% of people who live in terraced houses live in flats live in apartments who who haven't got their own overnight charging so what we did on this rally we used the infrastructure to see if it could be done mm-hmm. along the route so so I think that's quite important to say to people, you know, EVs should not just be the preserve of the rich or those that have got bigger houses with bigger, bigger driveways that, mm-hmm. that everyone can use them. So, so that's something um, we've been engaged with. In the, the other area that we've developed that most people probably don't know about in the UK, we, we also offer support to quite a few of the charge post operators so if there's a problem with that charging unit when someone gets there and they don't know how to plug in or they don't know how to switch it on or they're not getting power mm-hmm. a lot of that backroom support is actually um provided by the aa so you know we're working with companies like instavolt gridserve swarco many of these companies to kind of help on that journey so we we kind of see it as part of customer service and as the aa is a trusted brand in 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 what we do if if we can help ev drivers in their hour of need in in that way that that's also something that that we are keen to get it get involved with and then i get I, i guess apart from that we we are looking more broadly at what other opportunities they, there might be out there, whether it's helping with home charging or helping mm-hmm. companies with, with charging. You know, we talk to fleets all the time, talk about mm-hmm. their needs. So, yeah, personally, I, I think there are lots of opportunities out there. And I think the AA has a real right to play there as, as a kind of guardian of drivers across mm-hmm. the UK. All right. So um, let, let's talk about your views on a few things. And I think bearing in mind what you've just said, I think you, you can sort of add to, to this one. Let's talk personally for the next um, couple of questions. A nice quick one. What excites Edmund about this period of motoring we're living in? I think what really excites me, and, you know, I'll, I'll put my history out there. You know, in, in the past, I have been a motorhead, you know, I, a petrol head. I, I grew up next door but one to the chairman of, of Lotus Cars, Colin Chapman, in, in Norwich. Mm-hmm. And from the age of about five, six, seven or eight, you know, I loved seeing those Lotus cars go past our driveway. And I was mm-hmm. friends with Colin Chapman's son and his daughters and... He flew me to my first Grand Prix and I met racing drivers like Graham Hill and Emerson Fittipaldi and mm. all Jackie Stewart, all of those people. So from an early age, I've, I've loved cars. I loved the cars that my dad had from his, his Ford Zephyrs to his Citroen DSs. And as soon as I could drive, you know, I, I got a car at 17. It was a, a mini estate that I paid £45 for. But as soon as I could afford it, I then got an MG Midget and an MGB and, you know, went on to, to other cars. So so I've always 
loved cars. And when the electric thing came along, as, as I alluded to, at first, I was a bit disappointed because I wasn't all that excited by the cars. Mm -hmm. But now, the thing that really excites me, there are some electric cars that aren't just great electric cars. They are great cars. Mm. Um, yeah, and because I blog about electric cars, I'm, I'm lucky enough to get to drive them. So things like the, the Porsche Taycan is an amazing car. It, it drives like a Porsche 911, but, you know, it, it, it is totally clean at the, the tailpipe. <laughs> um, the, the only thing, and I'll be totally honest here, the only thing I would miss with a car like that and do miss with a car like that when I drive it, is actually the noise. I do miss that that kind of sound of a good V6, V8, V8, yeah. And even on the Porsche Taycan, where you can pay £350 to have a slightly enhanced noise, it is still a spaceship noise to me and not, not a real V8 <laughs> car noise. So, Wait so, a minute, you can actually pay to have noise in indeed. your car. <laughs> indeed. Indeed, you you pay extra to have a little noise, but it but it but it's still not quite the same. So I might grow to to accept that and adapt that because there are some other benefits of not having the noise. Because on a longer journey, it is so tranquil. You know, you mm -hmm. you can you can listen you can you can listen to the wind. You can listen to classical music, and you haven't got that mm -hmm. roar of the engine. So that there are benefits. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the future is very exciting. The, the fact that we will be able to drive cars without any tailpipe emissions. And we know that air quality, particularly yeah. in our towns and cities, you know, has suffered so much, particularly from diesel particulates um, and, and the kind of associated um, pollution. So I, for me, that that is re really exciting. and. Mm. You, you know, you, you you can drive a really good classy electric vehicle and you don't need to go out and get that V8, V12 engine to get that same excitement from driving. I, I still sometimes jump in my EV and just go for a drive because I enjoy driving it. And so that for me it is shows that the future is still bright for motoring. Oh, that's good. So, so you, you're not in mourning the loss of the <laughs> of the ice. But what about you know you you mentioned it, um, Formula One. How would that be with electric vehicles? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Well, yeah. I mean, there there is actually now you, you've got Formula One with your conventional um, petrol racing cars, but there is actually now a Formula E as well that 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 that's involved evolving and and doing quite well. But, it, but again, it's almost coming back to my last point. And I've been to several of the um, Formula E Grand Prix. There was one in Battersea, Battersea Park, actually, a couple of years ago. And again, the only real difference <laughs> is the sound. They do sound a bit like scale electrics. Kind of, you know, it's not, it's not that thrust of Formula One. Having said that, the Formula One itself actually are looking at advanced um, environmental uh, uh, combustion type engines and, and new forms of petroleum or petrol to actually generate them. So there's a lot of research going on there. 
And if you look at the history of Formula One in terms of road safety, they've developed so many things in Formula One that's made road cars much safer from crumple zones, from the the, the materials that are used. Mm-hmm. So actually with Formula One, and, and you know, I was talking to some people quite near the top of Formula One only, only earlier this, this week, they actually said, kind of watch this space, there will be greater environmental developments going on. So yeah. I think even in motorsport, it it is evolving, it's changing. They're well aware of the kind of carbon footprint that Mm -hmm. that is put out by by Grand Prix. And I think we will see some changes uh, for the better in the future. It'd be interesting to see, because I can't imagine it without that sort of noise, you know, that noise of cars going by in the Formula One. But there you go, We'll we'll wait and see. Now, um, I've been looking forward to your answers on this, um, not least because like a lot of people, we are contemplating the, the move to electric vehicles ourselves. And who better than someone in the sector to provide some personal guidance? I will not be satisfied with a pass on these questions, Edmund. And, and, and for my listeners, um, this is Edmund's personal view, and you should do your own necessary research, investigations, and make your own decisions based on informed and full analysis um, from data provided from various sources, etc., etc. So... Um, there probably should be a drum roll at this point. Okay, um, <laughs> I, I'm sort of feeling like Nicholas Parson. Um, Edmund King's recommendation, what vehicle um, will you recommend and why? I'm going to present four scenarios to you. Okay, here we go. The first one, I'm a family of six, four children, two under four. We live in the city and the car is used for the school run, grocery shopping, working, office job, and occasional trips to the coast. What CO2 neutral vehicle do you recommend and why? Yeah, this one is quite a tricky one because when you look at seven-seater EVs, and you know that's what you'd need in, in effect for a family of six, you'd need a seven-seater. And when you first start looking at them, quite a few of them are these kind of, combinations that that have evolved from a van so there's a nissan e nv 200 combi there's a similar peugeot one there's a a citroen one as well but the problem with some of these they are kind of van shaped so if you lived in an urban area Mm. they can be quite big actually quite cumbersome and certainly the earlier ones didn't didn't have much of a range. So you were talking about 124 miles range. Mm-hmm. However, on the horizon, coming out shortly, is the very exciting Tesla Y. So this is the new Tesla that you can get with three rows of seats. Mm-hmm. And for those two children, in the rear row of seats, you can easily fit two child seats. Um, for a six-footer sitting in the rear seat, their head kind of touches <laughs> the glass. But for the kids in those child seats, that works really well. So if it, if it was me in the city, I would go for the smallest car in, in outside space that actually fits the family within and and for me it would be the tesla y there for that city dweller so number one the tesla y that's interesting i think we're all going to look at that after everyone's listened to the episode okay scenario two i'm single Uh, i love two-seater fast sporty cars red is my favorite color 
love the open road, but I'm a nervous, anxiety-prone 45-year-old middle-aged management in the corporate world. I live in Plymouth and need to drive to York every two weeks to see my children, my two children. What EV would you recommend and why? Well, on this one, I haven't gone for a two-seater, but I've gone for a very exciting car. I've gone for the Ford Mustang Mach-E. Now, why, why I've gone for that is it's exciting to drive. And also, you can get a version with a longer range that actually has a range of 335 miles. And believe it or not, Plymouth to York yeah. is 334 miles, 0.8. So if you drive very, very carefully, you could get there in the Mustang and have 0.2 of a mile left over. <laughs> now, this Ford Mustang, we know very well because one of our uh, colleagues from BBC South, a guy called Paul Clifton, mm -hmm. with help from the AA, actually broke a Guinness World Record driving from Land's End to John O'Groats, which is 840 miles in a Ford Mustang Mach-E. And he did that with just charging for 45 minutes. Oh. So that shows our guy, if he's going to Plymouth to York, even if he needed to refuel, which he wouldn't if he drove carefully, he could do it very quickly. So a great car, great to drive, great to look at, and I'm pretty sure it comes in red. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Listeners, that's why I'm asking Edmund all these questions. It's the Ford Mustang Mach-E. Okay, scenario three. Um, I'm a part-time construction worker by day and freelance plumber always. Um, need a vehicle to carry my tools and equipment. Most of my jobs are in urban areas. What CO2 neutral vehicle do you recommend and why? Yeah, on, on this one, the, the van market is evolving, but slightly slower than the car market. But there's a new player in town and all the reviews are really good. They're called Maxus, M-A-X-U-S, mm -hmm. and they have a deliver range and they've got one, E-Deliver 3, which seems entirely suitable for this worker. It's mm -hmm. got a range of over 200 miles, so he'll be able to get into the city, do his jobs, get out again. And it's a pretty reasonable price for a versatile van. It's around £30,000. So the Maxus E-Deliver 3, I think, will do that city job. Okay, that's good. I actually thought you were going to sort of uh, recommend a hydrogen vehicle. Um, are those not quite as developed as, as you'd say as the EVs? Yeah, I mean, hy hydrogen, the, the kind of bets are on hydrogen for the bigger vehicles. So already in London, you've got various hydrogen buses mm -hmm. and some of the HDVs, the developments there. And where hydrogen can work is where you've got a big depot because the hydrogen infrastructure of where you refuel in the UK is pretty lousy at the moment. But if you've got a big depot where you've got your vans, you've got hydrogen re refueling there, it mm. will help. So I think the bet will be on some of the HDVs, buses, some of those bigger vehicles will probably go hydrogen rather than yeah. electric. Okay. Okay. Final, finally, 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 the um, scenario four. I'm financially fortunate. Um, I've been driving for three years. I'm quite young, 23. I want an impressive brand new car. I can afford it. What CO2 neutral vehicle do you recommend and why? 
Well, th- this one, I mean, the age did kind of get me a little bit because I have no doubt if I wanted that impressive car, I would go for the Porsche Taycan 4S. Fantastic car, brilliant drive. It's got four seats, drives like a 911. It's got a range of uh, over 260, 270 miles, but it is quite expensive and the insurance would be quite expensive. But that would be my number one. But if not, if you wanted a funkier, younger car for around town, there's a couple of really good traditional contenders, but that keep up and become contemporary. There's the Fiat 500e, or there's the Mini Electric. And both of those cars are just real fun to drive, easy to park, easy to recharge. So a lot of choice there for, for a young driver who wants to impress his or her mates. Oh, thank you. That's excellent. And you say that you write a blog on um, electric cars. Do, do you want to tell us what, where that blog is and where people can find out? Yeah, they, they can actually find it at theaa.com and it's just living with an EV. So oh. I think I've been doing that since about 2016. So cars that I've driven, changes to EVs, oh. anything like that, check, mm-hmm. check it out on theaa.com. Mm-hmm. Just, just a final, very, very quick question. Have you tested or tried out Neo? Yes, I have. Um couple of years ago I drove one one of the earlier ones great cars very comfortable decent range Mm -hmm. and more and more I think you know I think as I was alluding to you know five or six years ago some of the EVs I drove weren't Mm -hmm. great today I can say almost anyone I, I I've driven okay you know some are better than other in the build quality on 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 the interiors in in particular some have better ranges than mm-hmm. each other but they all are pretty quick they're pretty responsive they're easy to drive they're comfortable um and you are getting more choice now so you know I would say to people do do shop around do yeah. test drive them um because it is the buyer's market because we're getting more and more models year by year and there are some really good deals out there some of the prices are coming down and there are more and more lease deals salary sacrifice deals etc that helps having sort of the lease option um for, for a lot of people that's fantastic i think that's it edmund king obe many thanks for your time and insights An absolute pleasure, Elaine. Delighted to talk to you and the listeners. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.